Remember This is a podcast about memories, because some stories deserve to live forever. I'm Amanda Capito. On today's episode... My name is Palma. I was born and raised in Ottawa, but I now live in Toronto, where I work as a professor. And I'm just shy of 38 years old. I'll celebrate my birthday in a few weeks, in fact. Let's get started. So where are you living right now, and how did you end up here? Today I'm sharing a story about the Living Donor Program at the University Health Network Transplant Centre in Toronto. Last year, in February 2020, I was a patient of that program. I donated 69% of my liver to my cousin Jessica. Jessica and I share much more than a liver, but today I'm recording this story on our behalf. Ideally, we'd share this experience of podcast making too, but with the ongoing COVID pandemic and Jess being in a higher risk category following the transplant surgery, and me living with my two young children who are currently too young to be vaccinated, we're taking a cautious approach to in-person gatherings. But since you can't hear from Jess directly, I'll start by telling you a bit about her and about our relationship. Like me, Jess will turn 38 soon. She was born nine days after me, in fact, in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. Our fathers are brothers, two of five children, and they were born and raised in Sault Ste. Marie. They both married their high school sweethearts, our moms, and so our four parents have been spending time together since their teenage years. Jess and I are among ten cousins. My dad has a very fond memory of calling his younger brother to tell him that he and my mom were expecting a baby, and learning that his brother and sister-in-law, Jessica's parents, were expecting a baby too. Before I was born, my parents relocated to Ottawa for work, but we traveled back to the Sioux often, and Jess and I spent a lot of time together over holidays and vacations throughout our childhoods. We both have a younger brother, and they're about the same age. We both have a younger sister, who are likewise the same age, and so when our families got together, the six of us easily paired off as playmates. I have many fond memories of spending time at cottages in northern Ontario together, going to summer camp with Jess, joint family ski holidays... One bizarrely clear memory of Jess shaping my eyebrows for the first time when we were tweens. Our family photo album has many near-identical photos, obviously taken by parents squeezed shoulder to shoulder and calling for us to look at the camera. And a number of those photos were in identical outfits. What would you say was your proudest moment? So as you can gather, we had childhoods that were largely parallel and very happy and blessed. And then when we were in our early 20s, Jess began having strange symptoms, including persistent, terrible itching. I'm not going to try to explain or describe her experience. John Green, the author and a much more experienced podcaster than I am, has described in his book, The Anthropocene Reviewed, how impossible it is to know another's pain, no matter how hard you try to empathize. He writes, I can only know my pain and you can only know yours. We've tried all sorts of ways to get around this axiom of consciousness. We ask patients to rate their pain on a scale of 1 to 10, or we tell them to point at the face that looks most like their pain. We ask them if the pain is sharp or dull, burning or stabbing, but all of these are metaphors, not the thing itself. We turn to feeble similes and say that the pain is like a jackhammer at the base of the skull or a hot needle through the eye. We can talk and talk and talk about what the pain is like, but we can never manage to convey what it is. I think John Green is right, and so I'm not going to try to describe in a secondhand fashion what Jess's experience has been like, much less what it is. 
but I do know it was scary as she searched for a diagnosis. And then that diagnosis came. Jessica had PSC, primary sclerosing cholangitis, which is a disease of the bile ducts. If Jess were here, she could explain that condition with a stunning level of expertise. After many years of living with chronic illness and being a deeply curious, independent, and intelligent person, she now knows enough that she probably qualifies for a degree in hepatology. My simplified explanation is that Jess's bile ducts would sometimes become inflamed, causing them to scar and thereby narrow and harden, and this would cause the bile in her system to backflow, saturating and damaging her liver and causing all kinds of symptoms, including the itching. And those episodes of inflammation were not caused by what she ate or drank or did. They just happened. Tell me about a hardship that you went through that is unforgettable, but formative to who you are today. Sometimes Jess would start to feel symptoms and they would pass more or less uneventfully. Sometimes she would become ill and require hospitalization, and she couldn't predict. I remember reading in a parenting book why it is so important to establish routines for one's small children. It's because they can't exercise much control over their lives. They can't decide most things for themselves, and so the next best thing for them is predictability. They cannot decide, for example, when to go to bed, but knowing when they will go to bed and what will happen between now and then reduces the stress that can come from that total lack of control. Jess did not have control or predictability. She only had the stress of not knowing when she would next wind up in the hospital and of knowing that she could not prevent it. But what I want to tell you about Jess is that despite her illness and all the stress it entailed, she managed to thrive as well as one possibly could because among her many wonderful qualities, perhaps the most admirable one is this. Jessica is absolutely determined, totally hellbent on having a good time and being a good person no matter what. She seeks out fun when she can get it. She enjoys and appreciates the littlest things. She never, ever begrudges other people their health or luck, and in fact, actively shares in their happiness. She's incredibly generous and gracious in that way. Incidentally, she's also extremely stylish and very funny. But as her disease progressed and the liver damage worsened, some of the things Jess wanted to do, travel for example, became more fraught and difficult. When Jess was diagnosed, we learned she would almost certainly need a liver transplant at some point in her life as her organs sustained damage from the bile duct inflammation. But she did not know when. More stress and unpredictability. I recall learning at the time of her diagnosis that she would likely be eligible for a live donation. In other words, a family member or friend or maybe even a stranger could volunteer to undergo surgery to donate a portion of their liver to her and that person's liver would grow back. Is there a piece of advice or a sentiment that helped you get through all the years and that you continue to live by? Jess and I both wound up settling in Toronto. We're close friends in good times and bad. We count on each other. When Jess was in the hospital on occasion, I would visit her and she returned the favor. When my appendix ruptured a few years ago, she showed up with a bag of magazines and dry shampoo and hand cream and lip balm. And in the fall of 2019, when my daughter got sick with croup and wound up in the hospital with my husband late one night, it was Jess that I called to see if she could come over and watch my son while I went to join my husband and daughter at Sick Kids. I remember that call. Jess had just started to feel unwell, but she felt okay enough to be home alone, and so her husband came over to our place instead. He's a good friend, too. My daughter recovered from her croup quickly, but for Jess, that feeling of unwellness spooled out rapidly, and within a few weeks, she was really sick. I remember going to the hospital to see her. I was wearing this green wool dress and was going to be heading straight from the hospital to the campus where I teach to attend a meeting or something. 
I had to deal with an important deadline for work too, something to do with setting a final exam, and so I was sitting in her hospital room with my laptop on my knee. Thinking about that now, it's amazing to me how elastic and variable the word important can be. Jess's team had just decided that it was time. She was going on to the transplant list. She looked unwell to me, but not especially so. But the team decided she was ready for a transplant, and she felt ready. She was ready. We learned that her best chance at a good outcome would be a live donor. The wait list for an organ from a deceased donor is long, and so patients who need to wait for one will often be that much sicker and further in decline by the time a donor organ comes through, if one comes through. A live donor organ can be transplanted earlier, but you need a compatible donor. Who would you say played the biggest role in your life? Jess and I are from a large, tight-knit family, and many of us filled out the form to be considered as a prospective live donor. The process was simple. The UHN website has very clear, helpful materials about all aspects of live organ donation. Prospective donors fill out a lengthy health history and provide that document along with confirmation of their blood type to the donor office. When there's more than one prospective donor, as was the case with our family, the donor office identifies the person who looks like the most promising match, and that person undergoes medical testing. I remember receiving the call to say that I had been selected first for testing. I told my employer and started to make provisional arrangements, knowing that if I were a suitable donor, things could potentially move quite quickly. In January of 2020, I spent about four and a half days at the hospital undergoing tests. There were a lot of tests, but they were not all that invasive. I didn't require a biopsy, for example, but there was an x-ray, an MRI, a lung capacity test, multiple blood tests and interviews, among other things. The donor program is very dedicated to the idea that if they're going to put a healthy person through surgery to benefit another patient, they need to first ensure that this person is truly giving informed, unencumbered consent and that they're not at any elevated risk of complications. The sustainability of the live donor program rides on their ability to ensure donor safety first and foremost, and they take that commitment very seriously. The program is also incredibly well administered. Throughout my time with them, I've been able to get quick, helpful, friendly advice from a small team that knows me, led by an amazing coordinator named Chantel. Also, to ensure confidentiality and prevent pressure on donors, the team that I dealt with on the donor side was entirely separate from Jess's medical team. The idea was, among other things, that if I decided to drop out at any time, all Jess would hear was that I was not a suitable match, and she wouldn't know why. Of course, Jess and I actually texted updates constantly since we were not ourselves bound by this confidentiality requirement, but it was a comfort knowing how thoughtfully the program is administered. What's one memory that you cherish and continues to bring a smile to your face? So the test results came back shortly thereafter, and I was a suitable candidate for donation. I remember getting that call. I was actually on another call at the time with a graduate student. I saw I had a call waiting from the hospital and abruptly told the student I would call them back. I know it sounds strange, but hearing from Chantel that I was a suitable match for Jessica is one of the best memories of my life. The feeling of relief was so incredibly intense I can hardly describe it. By that point, I'd read enough about the Living Donor Program that I really was not worried about my own safety going into the surgery. I also knew the odds were good for Jess if she was matched in time. I did worry a little bit for her, but my bigger worry by far was that I might not be a match, and then the doctors would have to go down the list, and our family would have to keep hoping and waiting while Jess declined. Because by this point, Jess was declining more rapidly. Again, I won't try to describe what that period was for Jess or what it was like, except to say that she was suddenly, obviously, very sick. 
Leading up to the surgery and since, I've had a lot of people commend me for donating an organ, and they often comment on what a wonderful gift I gave my cousin. I never know what to say in response to this praise. I often try to deflect it by joking about how the real hero was my husband, who had to be awake on the day of the surgery and then care for our two young children and manage our household while I convalesced. And I also credit my mom, who stayed with him, to help. I'm joking, but really, they were very heroic. But the bigger truth is that while I understand why people think of it in terms of me giving a gift, more than anything, I felt like I received a gift. That's how I felt when the call came through to tell me I was a match. The only way I can explain it is to invite you to imagine an experience that so many of us have had, that of facing something that is serious and important in the truest sense of the word, and also awful and frightening, something like your loved one having a health crisis. You have no choice, no control, a limited ability to predict what's next. And so you muddle through. Is there an item that you have that has particular significance that you continue to hold on to? During these times of crisis, we often do things like send flowers or make casseroles, and that's all genuinely helpful, but it doesn't actually help solve the problem itself. It's better than doing nothing, but it never feels like enough. Now imagine suddenly you're in this situation and you learn that there is more you can do. In fact, you can help solve the problem. Now you have a choice. You have actual control. That shift, for me at least, was just pure, extreme, almost ecstatic relief. I was so relieved that I sobbed on the phone with Chantel. Then I called Jess and we both cried. Then I called my parents and I think my dad cried. And then I finally called back that poor grad student. I probably cried a bit then too as I told them that I was going to need to find them a backup supervisor for a few months because, in fact, as it turns out, I'd just been booked for liver donation surgery. The student handled this very unexpected news graciously and demonstrated a keen understanding of what that elastic word important really means. And so there we were. And on February 19th, 2020, we underwent the surgery. I remember arriving at the hospital in the very early morning with my husband. This time I was wearing a green t-shirt and sweatpants, the same shade as that wool dress I'd been wearing when this leg of the journey started. I went to see Jess, who was already at the hospital with her husband. She was wearing the exact same outfit. We'd not planned this, and I took that to be a good sign. We spoke briefly, hugged, and off I went. The intake process was very smooth. Jess's parents came to see me as I was lying on the gurney. I said goodbye to my husband. I think he took my eyeglasses for safekeeping, and I was wheeled off. I remember rolling into the operating room and seeing the faces of at least half a dozen people, possibly more, and feeling grateful. It's such an incredible thing that in our society, so many public resources and expertise and equipment and time and effort and knowledge and money and skill are poured into helping an individual family like mine solve one person's health crisis. I felt overwhelmed with gratitude for that. Let's talk about the present. What do you like to do now? How do you spend your time? My surgery started first. Jess was wheeled in some time later once they'd begun my operation and confirmed they would be able to successfully remove part of my liver. My surgery ended first too, and hers did some hours after that. Both surgeries went well. During that day, our parents and husbands waited together in the hospital. I'm told there were chicken sandwiches and a few walks and a lot of sitting and fretting, and good news coming in from doctors at a few blessed points. I've thought about the fact that as Jess's parents and mine sat around together as teenagers in Sault Ste. Marie and my grandparents' home, they could never have predicted that decades later they'd be huddled in a waiting room while their eldest children split a liver. In fact, if you'd mentioned live organ donation back then, I'm sure it would have sounded like something out of science fiction. But they made it through the day, and we all made it through the days that followed. 
The recovery period was not exactly easy, but for me at least it wasn't too hard. I didn't have any complications. I was in the hospital for a few days, and there were weeks after that when I had to move gingerly, when my ribs ached a bit, when my digestion was off. But I recovered fine. I have a scar on my abdomen now, but it's surprisingly discreet. I know I had pain in the immediate post-surgical period, and I know I received good care for it, but those memories are foggy. I'm sure that's largely due to the drugs I was given in hospital. Also, returning to John Green, he notes that one can never really revisit the past pain that one had in any visceral or experiential way. Writing about his own experience of terrible headaches caused by viral meningitis, he says, Even though I myself had the pain, I can't fully empathize with the me who had it because now I'm a different me. With different pangs and discomforts, I'm grateful that my head doesn't hurt, but not in the way I would have been grateful if in the midst of the pain it had suddenly disappeared. Maybe we forget so that we can go on. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I know that Jessica had more pain and difficulty than I did post-surgery. Her recovery was more difficult. This is because her surgery was far more invasive and because we were going into it together precisely because I was healthy and strong immediately beforehand and she really was not. But I think I can speak for both of us when I say that we largely forget the details of the temporary pain that resulted from the surgery itself. And we hold on to those feelings of relief and gratitude. We're especially grateful because today, Jess is healthy again. Technically, she doesn't even have PSC anymore. Her new liver performs normally. If you looked at her, you would never know that she'd ever been terribly sick. After the surgery, we received several presents from friends and family. My favorite one is a pair of matching enamel keychains we got from one of Jess's friends. They're shaped like cartoon livers and painted a cheery yellow with a smiling face and waving arms. On the back, it says, I'm a liver, not a fighter. I think that in fact, with our powers combined, Jess and I are both. No one knew it at the time when we were born nine days apart in 1983, but I got the good liver and Jess was the fighter. Thanks to the near miraculous work of the UHN Living Donor Program, she won. Thanks for listening. For more stories like this one, visit rememberthispodcast.com.